0: Would you stand with me as we welcome Clem as he comes to bring the word? Good morning, Redeemers. Have a seat. Hi, everybody online. Hope you're cozy. We all fought the good fight of getting to church. We used to call it the Sunday morning Olympics. How many of your parents remember Sunday morning Olympics? You know, (laughs) the agony of defeat, (laughs) trying to get your kids ready and everything. It's like the guy that, uh, or no, it's like the, the woman said to her, Husband, um, on a Sunday morning, she walks up and hands him all the kids' coats. He says, what are you doing? She says, it's my turn to go out in the car and honk the horn. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here. It's so good to be in in-person services. Uh, it it's, takes on different shapes and forms. I've been blessed to be able to travel some in the United States uh, since last summer. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just different in every community. It's different diff- from state to state. It's different. And uh, you just do what you can do, and, uh, but we are the body of Christ, aren't we? And we are gathered when we can, And so I'm so glad to see everybody, it's good to see people. Um, I just want to mention real quick, I, I brought a book, one of the benefits of being locked down last summer was I wrote a book. I guess that's what you do when you don't have anything else to do. So uh, it's uh, really a message that's been on my heart for years, I've, I've taught it a number of times, but when you give prophecies out, I think one of the greatest uh, challenges then is what do I do now? I just received a word from God, now what? And so this book is called Stewarding Prophecy, Waging Warfare with God's Word. How do we enter into the process of development once we receive a word from God? Because embedded in every word from God is some kind of a strategy and some kind of a tool that God uses to change you, because the goal is transformation, to become more Christ-like. So they're on the back table back there, we take check, uh, what, you just called them checks? Is that what they're called? Checks. Yeah, I had to look those up. Uh, we do take cash and British pounds and, um, and even credit cards, hallelujah. So uh, make yourself available to one of those back there. Um, this morning, we're going to get into some things that I think have been really on my heart stirring because of the times we're living in, because of what we just uh, got through, and there's more to come. That's not the bad news. The, the good news is still the gospel still works in spite of what, what our condition is. So I want to uh, look at a big picture this morning. Start big. And then focus on something in the New Testament. But we're going to start with uh, what I call a nation's prophetic perspective. We need a prophetic perspective on what God is doing. Not just what the, the, the uh, networks tell us and others. And it has to do with, and I love the prayer this morning, it has to do with the big view of the nations. What's God up to in the nations? Not, we've been so, sorry, so nationally focused over the last number of months. And, and for the right reasons. But, I mean, it's time to just lift up your heads and look around and say, what is God doing Everywhere, because God is working everywhere, and I'm I'm so happy to pray for these flags and the nations and think that way, and so we stand in such a very unique moment of time. We really do. Uh, We'll never forget it. Those of us that are at least old enough to remember, but we'll be telling stories about 2020 and all this, maybe beyond. Uh, But we have to pay attention to our standing. We have to pay attention to our current church operations because God is at work and He's still weighing us, not based on what we're doing outside. what's going on right in here? Some of you are not going, I hadn't given that a thought. (laughs) But that's why you have a pastor that does that. He already did that this morning. He was poking you on the inside. Um, Everybody has things going on on the inside. And one of the things I want to kind of just bring to your attention to help us understand what God's up to is what we call a core assumption. A core assumption. Everybody has a core assumption. A core assumption is a belief, it's a conviction that is so internalized in you as a fact that you never question it. It becomes an unquestioned basis for your activity and for the way you interact with current events and things that happen in your life. Let me give you an example of a, a core assumption that runs in you. Everybody's sitting in a nice, comfortable Redeemer chair this morning. If I just said, and I won't but you know, make you do it, but if I said everybody stand up and then, uh, okay, sit back down you would all operate on the core assumption that the chair you stood up from was going to hold you when you sat back down in it. You never never do think like, wait a minute, I'm going to sit down now, but I better check the chair and turn it upside down, shake the legs and push on it. That's a core assumption. It's so internalized in you, you don't think about it, you just do it. And when it comes to the things of this world, you see, we are tutored by Babylon constantly in the world system to make core assumptions. They want us to just never question what's going on. Right. And they want us to have this core assumption about the way the world runs. And so that, is, that becomes an internal platform inside of us from which we view the events of the world and then by which our gift operates from. Because we all have gifts. We all have the Holy Spirit in it. But the Holy Spirit, your gift has to sit on something. It sits on an internal platform. and It has all kinds of things in there that when you launch your gift, what comes out is what it comes launched off of. And there's one core assumption I want to just dig into this morning that I believe is just non-optional if we're going to survive. Non-optional if we're going to have a correct nation's perspective on what God is doing. And it's something we don't visit very often, but I think it's time. And it's the concept of the sovereignty of God. We're going to look at the sovereignty of God this morning because it's part of His nature. It's not just an attribute. It is who He is. He is sovereign. And so when I look at this core assumption that must run in us, it has to be an internal platform that becomes strong, robust, and unquestioned. When crazy things happen, we have to have this unquestioned concept inside that no matter what happens, God is sovereign. What do we mean by that? Well, we have to define that a little bit. Um, Let me take you to uh, a few verses in Scripture, one in the New Testament, one in the Old. We'll start in Ephesians chapter one, verse eleven. Ephesians one eleven, in Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. Now that's a statement of sovereignty. Who does God report to? Himself. <laughs> who counsels God? Himself, he actually doesn't need your help. That's just going to, just relax, okay? Relax. I'm, listen, the other thing that's going to do today, is going to whittle down your prayer time. We're going to reboot your, or reform, or all, we have all these buzzwords now. We're going to reshape, reset. We're going to reset your prayer life this morning. Because when you really understand how sovereign God is, it's going to really help you in your prayer life. It means having undisputed, Ascendancy. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 10, it says, he, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above, where? All the heavens, that he might fill all things. It's a statement of supreme ascendancy, undisputed ascendancy, supreme power that's unlimited. That's sovereignty. That's God. Isaiah puts it this way. In Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah 46, and by the way, I'll quote Isaiah several times today because I found Isaiah to be an incredible mentor when it comes to really understanding what the sovereignty of God is and what it looks like from a biblical view. And so he's really helped me over the years. Everybody needs a good dead mentor. Amen. All right. Amen. The live ones are really good too. I love to mentor young men and things, but you know what? You need a good dead mentor because they... They've been there. So Isaiah will help tutor us today. Isaiah chapter 46, we look at verse uh, 9, 10, and 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. How are we doing so far? Okay. I am God, there is none like me. Watch this. Declaring the end from the beginning. Who can do that? Nobody. Nobody but God, right? And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying what? My counsel shall stand. Why? Because he counsels himself. That's why we know it's going to stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. He will. You know, there's a trick question we use in philosophy, and sometimes even maybe an atheist will try to pull it on a Christian, try to trap them in this trick question. They'll say, so, you're a Christian, huh? Yes, I am. You believe in God, don't you? Yes, I do. So, you believe God can do anything? Don't ever fall for that. Don't let them, you know, he who frames the question wins the argument. So you, you have to reframe the question. So you believe God can do anything, huh? And if you say yes, he's got you. Oh, so you think God can make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? You go, oh, oh well, well, no, that's not what I meant. So, so here's what you do when they say, so you think God can do anything, huh? He says, yes, I think God can do all his holy will. God can always do his purposes. Whatever he wills, he can do. That's what God can do. Because there are things that God can't do. God won't make another God. As he said, I'm God, there is no other. So God won't make another God. God will not do evil things to you, right? We have to understand, you know, God can't make a square circle. Right? I mean, really, there's things that obviously God's not going to do, but don't let him trap you into that. Because God says, I will accomplish all of my purpose. So the meaning of sovereignty suggests there is an absolute reality to God, and there's no such thing as being partly sovereign. He's almighty over all. And if he's not, then he's not mighty at all. That's good. He's either almighty over all things, or he's, he can't be partly mighty or partly sovereign. That means nothing in creation is outside of his wisdom. Nothing in creation is outside of his superintendency. He's got his eye on Mars, and he's got his eye on a molecule this morning. You can see the littlest thing, and they're the greatest thing. So when we undertake a study a little bit of the sovereignty of God, we have to realize, see, this is such an essential platform because it's the only thing that gives us a correct nation's perspective when the world starts going crazy, when crisis hits the earth. And it, newsflash, it's not over. This is just the beginning, Jesus said, about the beginning of birthing pains that's going to lead us to the finish And lo and behold, we're all talking about last days and end times, but here we are in the last days, and it's still end times. It will be forever and ever until Jesus comes. It'll always be the last days, okay? But there's signs that will come. And Jesus talked about birth pains, and we had some birth pains this year. And ladies, help me out. They don't go away, and they don't get less frequent, and they don't get nicer and quieter, right? They get a little more intense and a little more frequent until we birth what God wants to birth. And then you forget all about it, don't you? I just had several friends just have babies this week. I don't know, it's just, I think they're calling them COVID babies. But anyway, um, but, you know, get lots of, lots of pictures on Instagram. And you can just see them just, oh, the, the greatest thing. And you just see all that. And that's, that's you know, when, when we get this thing, when we finish, when we hit the finish line and Jesus comes, we'll forget all about it. But in the meantime, we press on and we endure. So the concept of sovereignty is not new, but I have observed, over the last nine or 10 months, that the way that Christians and the body of Christ has acted and reacted to certain events in the Earth would actually contradict the acceptance of the fact that no matter what, God is sovereign. And so we have to have a capacity to fully accept this. And that's my, my endeavor this morning is to help build prophetic capacity in you. That's what a prophet does. Prophets don't just prophesy. they're equippers of the saints. And so they, help, they They build a prophetic Christ in you. They, they deliver prophetic Christos into the saint, just like a pastor would deliver pastoral grace into the saints and so on. So to help understand what sovereignty is, we're going to look at what it isn't. Sometimes there's a better way to, to explore something. So I'm going to just give you four wrong concepts of sovereignty because this is we get this from the way people react about it. And first of all, some would view sovereignty in a wrong way as actually more like a we call it a veto facility like a president would use when a certain action comes to the place of decision and you go nope I'm going to veto it I'm not going to let it happen if I don't it's going to happen so therefore I sit like at a heavenly desk and I veto legislation that comes across my desk and I you know it's only used in certain times it's not used all the time you know he's God's sovereignty, he holds it in a desk drawer and pulls it out and rubber stamps things and says, no, I sovereignly say no, but the rest of the time he's kind of held hostage by what's going on in the earth. And, you know, it's a stopgap, last-minute, last-ditch effort that some people actually brag about. Oh, I was at this, and I was going through this, and then the last minute the God came through, he's like he pulled out his rubber stamp and said, no, I won't let that happen. But, boy, it was hard up until that moment. It's like God sits helpless in heaven watching, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. It's not a very good biblical concept of God. So you have a delete button on your phone and on your computer. Just put one in your brain for a minute and just delete. We delete that type of thinking, that God sits helpless in last-minute ditch efforts. You know, when we get a certain number of people praying in a certain location, then then something's going to happen. Got quiet in here because that's kind of how we think. Well, if more people had prayed, fill in the blank. God doesn't work that way. Secondly, some people wrongly look at sovereignty as a counter response to what the enemy's doing. Can I tell you something? God doesn't play defense, God only does offense. <laughs> he says, I will accomplish all my purpose. And He doesn't bow to anybody else's, and He doesn't react. He doesn't react to anything that you do or I do or the enemy does or any nation does or any head of state does or any king throughout the Old Testament. God doesn't react. He's never surprised. He never goes, well, oh, I never saw that one coming. <laughs> right. Or as my good friend uh, Hugh Laybourne out in Idaho said in a great theological statement one time, God never says, oops. <laughs> Isn't that deep theology? Yeah. Oops. It doesn't come out of God's mouth. You see, some think there's two battles going on and eventually we're going to win, but in the meantime... It's kind of like it's up for grabs. It's a 15-rounder, and boy, we took 12 was bad. But boy, I hope God can come back and counterpunch his way into a victory in round 13 and so on. It's not like that. I'm going to make a couple bizarre statements this morning, so here's the first one. I'll warn you. It's like when you've got to take the really extra-large pill. It's like, I'm going to warn you, but this, this is going to go down hard, but just swallow hard. Ready? <laughs> Actually, in sovereignty, there is no war. In sovereignty... There is no war. We will have battles. We have personal battles. In fact, because God is supremely in control, there's, there's nobody. He's not really at war with anybody. He's, he, he already won, you see. There, there is no war, but there's battles. God has an ordained outcome to everything. That's what Isaiah said. I'm going to accomplish my purpose. I have an ordained outcome for everything. Let me tell you what the battle is. Agreeing. Agreeing with God's outcome. That's your battle. That's my battle. That's been the battle of every human that is in this book and throughout all of history. The battle is always agreeing with what God is planning and what he's purposing in the earth. His purpose is going to stand. And you know what? They don't make sense a lot of the time to us. Even Jesus had to agree. (laughs) with God's ordained outcome. He had to battle through that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Got into it. Oh, Lord, if there's any way out of this. I see the outcome, but I don't like the process. (laughs) Is there any other way? (laughs) Finally, says, okay, not my will. And we all have to be that way. Let me give you a third wrong concept of the sovereignty of God, and that is the fact that we would think that the sovereignty of God is only suited to the purposes of the church, you know, his people certainly not sovereign over those heathen. They're in rebellion anyway. He has no control over them. They just do whatever they want. It's like, oh my God, it's like the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own sight, and God's sitting up in heaven going, I don't know what to do with these people. They just do whatever they want to do. God's not only sovereign over those who are saved. He is sovereign over every affair of every nation and every wicked, pagan, Babylonian leader that ever darkened the pages of Scripture, God is sovereign over them. If you don't believe me, click on the icon that says Nebuchadnezzar. Just look at that old boy's life. He was at the top of his game, ruling the world, actually. God turned him into a grass-eating, cow-like animal. I like that, Neb. (laughs) You think you're so strong. Yeah, God is not restricted in his authority. You see, we have something else from Isaiah that we learn. If you go to Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 21, Isaiah 28, verse 21 and 22. I would just do 21 right now. The Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the Valley of Gibeon. He will be roused. I think this is a season where what's really happening and the the crisis that's hitting the earth is God's being roused. And what rouses him is the cries of the people. The pressure in the earth begins to rouse God into action. And the best parallel we see is the whole amazing, long, elaborate story of the exodus of God's own people when they were held in captivity. And it was their crying out for 400 years that finally God says, I now hear the cries of my people. I'm going to come down now. And man, he was roused. And he came down. And when God comes down, he uses people. And he used a leader named Moses. God always answers a prayer through leadership. The cry of the people, get us out of here. God's answer, Mo, you're the man. Yeah. Moses, come here. And right away he's like, you picked the wrong guy. <laughs> you picked the wrong guy. I can't speak. I stutter. I'm not the right guy. And he goes a little sovereign on him. Hey, Mo, what? Who made man's mouth? Uh, I guess you did. And, and who, who made uh, eyes to see? Yeah. Uh, who, made, who made it mute? He goes into all these, like, at first you're going, well, that's God. No, that must be the devil. Well, that must be God. Wait, 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 wait. I'm confused. He, he went totally sovereign on Moses to show Moses, no matter what, I'm in charge. I have a plan, and you're going to help me carry it out. Right. So every time he said, we will, he meant, or every time he says, I will, I will do this, Moses. I will do this. I will do this. What he really meant was, we will. Moses, you and me will do this. And God's got a plan to get us out of here. Do you realize that? How many want to get out? I, want, I can't wait to leave mortality. I can't wait. Darn that gravity just holds me down every time I'm a prisoner in planet Earth because of gravity and mortality, and so are you. But the cry of our heart is, Lord, come get us. Maranatha, get us out of here. And so when intensity and crisis is in the Earth, just like God brought it to the people of Egypt, he brought crisis after crisis. Most like, God, how are you going to do it? You're just going to kind of rapture us out, and we all just escape quickly with no pain and no gain? He goes, no, watch what I'm going to do. You're going to go, and you're going to start threatening a world-dominated power and power structures that are in place, that are holding my people in and oppressing them. He says, you're going to start assaulting power structures in the earth. I'm going to do it one plague after another, one crisis after another, and they're just going to keep coming until finally they go, uncle, and even then, they, I'm going to, this is so sovereign, even then, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> okay, let my people go. Okay, I will. No, I won't. Let my people go. Okay, I will. No, I won't. What's going on here? See, the battle is what? The ordained outcome. Even, even in Pharaoh was in battle. There wasn't a war between God and Pharaoh. There was a war between Pharaoh and Pharaoh. He was battling the eternal sovereign plan of God. He, nobody could stop it. Not the Red Sea, nothing. I got off on that, sorry. Get back to the, your notes, Ferris. Okay. What Isaiah says here, And the rest of verse 21 of chapter 28, the Lord is roused to do his deed. Now watch this, Isaiah says, strange is his deed. And he's roused to work his work. Alien is his work. Strange is his deed. Alien is his work. I sound like Yoda. I guess Yoda got his script from Isaiah. (laughs) Put the verb first. Strange is his work. Alien is his deed. But that's our God. In theology, we call it the opus alienum, the alien works of God. An opus alienum is the works of God that seem to mitigate against his nature and his character. Where God, you know, uses, in an act of decree, he uses secondary means to carry out his perfect will. The secondary means would be even heathen, pagans, and sinners. And if you ever get confused on that, I'll simplify for you. You go to the cross. The cross is our stoic example of the opus alienum of God, where God, by his own decrees, used all kinds of evil people to put his own son on a cross and murder him for us. That is a strange work. Alien to any, no human would come up with that plan, guarantee it. So, Dr. David Lamb, great theologian and professor of Old Testament theology, wrote a great book called God Behaving Badly. It's a great book. (laughs) Catchy title, isn't it? And he wrote it because he was the professor of Old Testament at a seminary, still is, and uh, always had the first year students, and so first year students in Old Testament theology, and they just dug into God's character and nature and His operations in the Old Testament. And once you really read them for what they are, you go, "Wow, that's God behaving badly. <laughs> he was having a bad day. He wiped out a whole group of people, and He did this and that." And he, so they had a lot of questions. "Um, sir, yes, is God a racist?" "Um, sir, we have a question. Is God sexist?" "Uh, sir, we have. Is God a murderer?" "Uh, we have a lot of questions here." And so we wrote the book, "God Behaving Badly." Because you know, it looks like God's really having a bad old covenant, and then He has a new covenant. Thank God, and He cleans up His behavior; He's a little nicer. So we have a nice Jesus in the old New Testament, but boy, we have this grumpy old God in the Old Testament, and that's how some people try to manage God. You ever try to manage God? He's unmanageable. He's actually incomprehensible if you just want to just lay it all, all your cards down. If you want to totally surrender this morning, see, the first premise of theology is this. God is incomprehensible. Get over it. Now we're going to study the Bible. Right. So, right? <laughs> Open your Bibles now. So the last wrong concept kind of ties in with this, and that would be the fact that we think that sovereignty means that God is sovereign when he acts as an agent of beneficial outcome. In my life, in my life. Oh, he's sovereign. Oh, I just want to brag on the sovereignty of God. He's just so good because I've been praying and God came through and he did this. What happens when God isn't answering your prayers or it seems like it? And things don't go your way and you prayed for this and this didn't happen. You prayed for somebody to get healed and they didn't get healed. And you prayed for someone this and this didn't happen. And then they died and then the... Is he still sovereign? Is he only sovereign when he does things that benefit you and your favorite candidate? Oops, that slipped out. I didn't mean. To, I did not mean to say that. When is God sovereign, and when is He not? He's always sovereign. So help us, Isaiah. Help us. Go back to Isaiah for just a minute. Isaiah forty-five, verse seven. I am the Lord. There is no other. Any questions? Good. I form light, okay, and I create darkness. Okay, we're okay with that. I make well-being, thumbs up, ready, and I create calamity. Wait, 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 must be, what translation are you using, Clem? That can't be right. What is it in the Hebrew? Okay, in the Hebrew, it's I create evil. Is that better? You swallowed that pill, (coughs) a little better? I am the Lord who does all these things, and Quesha still had a question. I am the Lord, I do all these things. God takes full responsibility for everything. letting you just swallow for a minute. We have to grab hold of this. And the only way you balance this extreme, this seems like this is extreme, the only way you can balance the extremities of God acting this way is you got to understand what's behind it. I don't have time, but I would call it core assumption number two that has to run in you. And that is this, God's heart of redemption. You balance the absolute sovereignty of God with God's heart for redemption. Everything God has done from beginning to end was to bring redemption into our lives for all of history. Because Jesus was a lamb slain before you were ever even put on the planet. God had redemption in his mind and already had slain his own son before he ever created the human race. And so therefore everything was to carry out his plan of redemption. Everything beginning to end, even the crazy book of Revelation, it's all about redemption in the end. So let me give you finally a picture, and then I got one more scripture in the New Testament. Isaiah 6 is a picture of sovereignty. If you want a snapshot, a photo out of the Old Testament that Isaiah gives us, and Isaiah, this is just the first verse, Isaiah 6, 1, says, In the year King Uzziah died, death of a king, death of a world leader, the removal of someone from their power of office, whereby Israel had been at peace for 50 years and was living in prosperity. I guess you could say Uzziah had made America, I mean, Israel great again. <laughs> Israel was being doing great, and now there's a crisis because Uzziah's gone. And in the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. See, he was his uncle. It was Isaiah's uncle. I think he hung around the throne room every now and then. He had access. He loved the throne room. He loved playing around Uncle Uzziah's throne and loved watching him adjudicate and lead the nation. And then he dies. He says, so in the year that that happened, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Folks, we've got to start there. You're never going to go into the next (laughs) number of weeks and months and years unless your eyes are fixed on him and his throne. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Watch this picture. High and lifted up. See, there it is. Certainty of rulership, certainty of his ascendancy, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow. Unlimited reach of his authority. Come on, folks. This is the posture that we have to have as believers. You have to have it if you're going to be prophetic. You have to have it if you're going to have any kind of a sane prayer life. With disasters continuing to come, you must take this posture and divest yourself of all the wrong concepts of God, how he rules, his authority, the nature of his involvement in all the affairs of the earth, because he is involved in all the affairs of the earth, and position ourselves correctly going forward. What pastor said earlier, I hope you caught it because I'm going to use that word in just a minute, we have to refocus, reset, whatever word you want to use, we have to focus on the right things and the right things about God in this hour. And so we can't be perplexed when disaster hits. We don't sit there and go, oh, here it comes again. Why? I thought COVID was over and here. Oh, we got another wave. And Oh, my God. Did you hear? They just shut down another. We, yeah, we can observe, but we don't react. We say, yep, God's up to something. That's all I've said for the last year. What do you think? Oh, God's up to something. <laughs> I, I don't know anything else. God's up to something. So we're not perplexed. We keep asking. We keep seeking. We keep knocking. We become bold. Not arrogant. You know, boldness doesn't come from personality. Boldness comes from what? Assurance of God's sovereignty. That's where we become a bold church. God is sovereign. What? How can you? I just know. Why? How do you know? Because the Bible just says he's sovereign. Whatever he's doing, it's his purpose, and I'm going to flow with it. I'm going to begin to flow with it. Go to Acts chapter 1 very quickly. I just want to take you into this to one text to help us understand this whole concept of what, what's going on on our watch, to help us I call it a Holy Spirit reset. Jesus came. He sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came and helped us reset this whole program called the New Testament Church, and we got to go back and reset to what Jesus originally intended. He's not changing his plan. He said, I will build my church. He's not going to change. We build people. He builds the church. You're called here to build people's lives. Reach them and build them. Keep reaching them, and then to get them in and build their lives, equip them. So... In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, think about this. Just before Jesus ascends, his disciples had a chance to ask him one last question before he ascends into heaven. One last que- If you had one last question to ask Jesus before, what would you ask him? Don't raise your hand. Don't even think about it because most people would be like, well, when are you coming back? And some would say, who's going to win the 2024 election? That's what we really, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) But what what would you ask them if you had one last question? Certainly, certainly, you would never think to ask a political question, would you? But here's the 12. Here's his mighty disciples who walked with him for three and a half years and saw signs and wonders and miracles and watched him be crucified and then raised from the dead. And they had just walked around and he was talking all about the kingdom. And they go, wait, 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 we've got one more question. Are you going to make Israel great again? really? Is that your final question? Are you going to restore the kingdom in Israel now, Lord, before you go? Because we got some questions. We got some fear. We have a lot of uncertainty and doubt. Don't don't laugh. That's what you and I would have asked. Same thing. We're no different. We're disciples. I mean, think about it. Their country had been colonized by Rome they were under Rome's thumb. They were under great oppression. The army was still walking around. They were still crucifying people in the streets. And they wanted God to intervene one more time before Jesus left. He says, yeah, we can see how you got, you got some power, man. <laughs> and you don't bow to these guys, but you're leaving. And they had no idea that soon, in just a few years, they would be scattered to the nations. You see, they were still slightly ignorant and strongly nationalistic. Slightly ignorant. <laughs> And strongly nationalistic. So that's why they asked him, Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice his response. This is what I want to focus on at, the, at our last few minutes here. We have to focus on Christ's response to stupid disciple questions. <laughs> okay, I was going to say. Christ's response. And he probably, inside, because he's the Son of God and he's perfect, but if he'd had a little bit of humanity at all, he would have gone, you guys. Or probably one of his other quotes, I have been so long with you and you still don't know. <laughs> you know it's kind of like you almost see him go, oh, my gosh. Anyway, Jesus directs them, immediately directs them away from national restoration and correctly points them to the kingdom, to the mission. So Jesus says this. The first thing he does is he points them to what? The sovereignty of God. Isn't that great? And that's what I'm attempting to do this morning. First thing Jesus did was refocus them back onto what? The sovereignty of God. Notice his response. It's not for you to know all the details. It's not for you to know the times, the dates, the seasons, all these things. Why? He says, because the Father has set them already by his own authority. That's a statement of sovereignty. He had to take them back to, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. God is sovereign. Get over it. Stop asking so many stupid questions. That's what I would have said, but I, anyway. He had to point his own disciples away from national and political focus because we have a propensity for that. And they didn't even have CNN and the internet. God bless them. They didn't have as much confusion as we have available. Their desire, hey, they wanted a restored political nation so they wouldn't have any problems. He says, look at guys, when it comes to political power, they're limited. When it comes to Godly power, it's unlimited. It's constant. The kingdom never diminishes. Empires come and go. Kings come and go. Not God. So, to be, see, even for us right now, apply it, please. For us to be focused on national or even political restorations of any kind is a wrong emphasis. It was for the early church. It is for the church of 2021 going forward. So when they said, Lord, are you going to restore? He says, guys, excuse me, get your eyes off of Israel. Forget national restoration and shift your focus. We got a church to build. My golly, we got people to win for Christ, right? And they would have been crushed if he'd focused them that way. In 70, 70 AD, they were crushed. Yeah. Titus came in and crushed Jerusalem, wiped them out. Could you imagine if they didn't have the right focus? Right. So we have to know the God who is sovereign over all the nations. And making a certain nation great in the earth in this hour is not on God's agenda. Uh, So, guess what? We have to hit the delete button and get cleansed from the toxic thinking of nationalism and sever all of our emotional ties that are just simply temporal. I don't know if you caught it. Your pastor hit that scripture this morning about the temporal. We don't, you know, these temporal things, these mortal things, they'll blind you. So, he pointed them to God's sovereignty, and then he does this he redefines their understanding of true power. He had to redefine their understanding of what's, why? They were afraid of the power of Rome. They were afraid of the power of government. They were afraid of all kinds of false power structures that were in there. They were real, but they're not as real as the kingdom. He says, take your eyes off Israel. Refocus. It's not for you to know what the Father's already got set in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Come on, somebody shout a Pentecostal yeah. shout this morning. Somebody give a power shout. Woo! We got power. It's not just vocal. (laughs) It's power. It's authority. It's ability. That dunamis, that dunamis power that gives you an ability in the midst of a crisis. That's when you rise and shine. Isaiah again, I'll quote him. Arise, shine. Gross darkness covering the earth. He says, as for you, arise, shine. Your light has come. So the disciples... I mean, they understood power as the ability to have natural authority. That was their thinking of power even at that moment, even after watching Jesus do what he did. And so they said, well, God, aren't you going to exercise some earthly power before you leave? (laughs) Could you please exercise a little power in the political realm and kind of set some things in order? And so he says, no, I direct you now away from the political arena, and I direct you back to God Almighty, sits on his throne. He directs them toward the spirit realm. Folks. That's where your power comes from. That's where your source comes from. That's where all your energy comes from. That's where your life comes from. It's from the realm of the Spirit of God. It's invisible, it's immortal, and it is eternal. Somebody ought to crack a smile right now. Good time to crack a smile. Just crack it and go, that's good news. So, these disciples were just like us. Simple men? Powerful wives, I'm sure. We never, they don't never talk about the wives. It would have been embarrassing. Right. right. They, they must have been amazing women. But these were just simple men, tax collectors and fishermen and men of a, an obscure region that nobody knew about. But we all know their names today, don't we? There's Peter and James and John. We all know their, their names. Who, who can name who was, who was the mayor of Jerusalem when Titus came in and sacked it? Anybody remember his name? No, we don't care. Nobody remembers who the mayor of Jerusalem was in 70 AD. We remember the disciples because they were filled with power. They had more power than the mayor or even Caesar himself. True power comes from the ability to hear the voice of God and obey him. That's true power. That is true power. The ability to move God's purposes toward completion, that is power, and that's what we've been called to do. So to do that, he not only hmm, redefines power, but then he reminds them of partnership. He reminds them of the call to partnership with him. Yeah, I'm leaving, but we're in partnership. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. I'm leaving because I'm going to go up and run the control room. But you are down here, and you are my witnesses. We are in divine partnership. I'm not your partner. You're my partner. <laughs> right? It's like when Joshua saw the Lord in Joshua 5. Remember, he encounters the, the captain of the host, and his first question was, hey, are you for us or for them? He goes, neither one, buddy. <laughs> that's not the question. The <laughs> question is, I'm the captain. Are you for me? Are you on my side? Are you my partner? So that's what we have to do. You are will be my witnesses. What's that mean? Jesus claims complete ownership of this mission. He owns the mission. He directs the mission. He runs the mission. He empowers the mission. He'll finance the mission. He'll do it all. And we are to be his witnesses. So stop looking for political solutions. It doesn't matter. Because we have the divine partner. Finally, he goes global on them. I love this. And you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria. And Jesus just let it out. And to the uttermost parts of the earth. He couldn't use the word global. They didn't even know what a globe was. He goes, guys, this is going to go global. They go, Ugh, what's a globe? <laughs> so Jesus I better not go there. Uh, and you're going to have the internet. No, I better not go there either. And, uh, you're going to, and you're going to have airplanes, and it's going to be really cool. No, I better not go there. Uh, this thing's just going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That, that's enough. But what he meant was, this thing's going to go global, and I'm going to blow your minds with technology from generation to generation, from the steam engine to the railroad to the telegraph to the telephone to the TVs and cameras and now the Internet. He goes, hey, I'm not done. Are you with me? God's done all this because he's got a mission, and he's closing it out. So he expands their little tiny, little singular political focus on one nation and canceled it and says, guys, we're going to expand this thing to the world, the whole world. His response, guys, what? Go global. Stop thinking about Israel. (laughs) The kingdom of God is one transcendent nation. That's it. And so we are privileged to be a part of global teams. This church has global teams that go out. You reach the nations. I love that about you because we're citizens of his kingdom. And guess what? God's saying the same thing now as he did back in Acts 1. What is it? Number one, shift your focus. Number two, receive power from the Holy Spirit. Number three, come into greater partnership with Jesus Christ himself. You're his partner. And look what God's doing in the nations. Look what he's doing in the nations. That's the only way you're going to have a correct prophetic nation's perspective to see what God's actually up to. And the task of your great leaders, and I love them. I've got to spend some quality time with your leaders, your pastors and leaders and staff. I'll tell you what, they know, and their primary task is to build faith in you. That's why they preach this book week after week. That's why they have classes. They have discipleship. They're just constantly giving you what you need. So stay connected. I don't care what happens in the next weeks or months. Stay connected. You can't do it alone. I'll give you one last word that just came to me. Isaiah 65, verse 8. How many want some new wine? That's a trick question, but you better raise your hand. (laughs) How many want new wine? That's what, he, that's what came. Jesus set him up, and then what did he do? He sent new wine. He sent the Holy Spirit, and that's what empowered him, and that's what kept him going, and that's what freaked everybody out. But we need the new wine constantly flowing. That's what Joel prophesied. The vats in heaven are going to overflow, oil and wine, Holy Spirit, oil and wine. But Isaiah did say this also, Isaiah 65, 8. He says, new wine is found in the cluster. Don't destroy it. The new wine is found in the cluster of the grapes. You don't get new wine in one grape. You've got to stay clustered, church. Stay in the cluster, and you'll get the power. You'll get the new wine. You'll always be refreshed. When, you, when, when the enemy wants to come and isolate you, and God bless you guys online, I still watch stuff online. But you know what? Stay connected somehow. Get connected online. Pick up your phone. Stay connected. Stay in the cluster, and guess what? God will continue to pour out new wine for the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we're alive and well and still part of your mission. We bless those that have gone on before us. Their assignment was done. But God, we still have an assignment. There is still an ordained outcome you have for us. And so, Lord, we gladly embrace that. We come into a new level of agreement. And Father, help us all to see the way Isaiah saw in a moment of crisis where he said, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up train of his robe filled the temple. He is a sovereign God and we must come boldly to that same throne, the throne of grace, and obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. We come boldly today God, knowing that you'll meet each and every one of our needs For the glory of Jesus Christ, our great partner. <laughs> Say amen church. Amen.